Welcome to Subtle Beast, everybody. I am your host, Foltz. With me, as always, my main man and partner in crime, Mr. Steve Apostolopoulos. How are you, brother? Oh, I'm doing good, Foltz. It's going down here in Studio 1B. Great, and you're right. It's going on here in Studio 1B, and uh, we have a fantastic tale to tell you today. It's actually not a tale. It's a true story, and... Uh, it covers the inner workings of one particular secret society. Now, Steve, have you ever wanted to be part of a secret society? Oh, yeah. I figured you would. You seem like you would uh, fit right in with them. Well, there was a few in my life. Uh, I know a couple of Freemasons. Yeah. I mean, we actually did one of our live shows at a Freemason Lodge that they invited us to. And uh, I like to say it was like uh, inviting the uh, fox into the hen house. It's true. But it was a great time, and they were great, great guys. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when me and Steve first started off our show, when we looked out, because there was a bunch of them there. It was you know, a special night, and everybody had tuxes on, me and Steve included. And just looking out at this crowd, it looked like they were just staring through our souls. Didn't care or want to hear anything that we had to say. But by the end, we had won, won them over, and they were all lined up to talk to us about, about our show and how great they thought it was. So uh, Really opened up. Yeah, we, they definitely opened up. We got them on our side, and uh, might be a little tough thing to do when you, know, you start off your show saying that you know, some people might refer to us as a conspiracy theorist podcast, especially when you're standing right in the special room of the Freemasons. But, uh, you know... Some people may like to say that we're conspiracy, but I like to say more that we're like a truther podcast. I agree. Get that, getting the good information out there. But speaking of secret society, sort of like uh, the Freemasons, there was one that was going on in uh, San Francisco, California some years back. And uh, we actually have a report here from a, uh, a person that was actual member of this secret society and she breaks it down tells us everything that was really going on in there and what her experiences was like and you know how much she enjoyed it and what she didn't like and this that and the other thing and uh i have to say it's gonna be it's gonna be a fun listen so i, I suggest everybody just get real comfortable because we're going to take you through the day in the life of this person from the start of them joining this secret society right up to the point where she really wasn't a member anymore. And it's intriguing. I mean, I have to say, after going over the information and what this uh, lady had to say, I think I would have wanted to at least find out what was going on in here. Very interesting. Very interesting. So, uh, Steve, you want me to start it off or would you like to? Go ahead, man. I always like the way you started. Okay, so here we go with my year in a San Francisco's in San Francisco's two million dollar secret society startup, the rise and fall of Latitude, an exclusive for profit 
underground society started by a wealthy backer. Can you keep a secret? I blinked. I didn't know Justin very well. I did know that he was very I did know that he was a very affable beard bearded man, and we both lived in the Bay Area. And at the time, he ran a small creative agency while I worked as a writer and digital media consultant. I think so, I said cautiously. I think I can keep a secret. Justin raised his eyebrows. Of course I can, I said. I've been thinking about giving you something, he said. Justin told me he had been considering giving me a gift for weeks, and finally decided to go through with it after reading an article I had written about how people use pseudonyms to explore their identities. But you have to promise me that you won't tell anyone about it. No one. I nodded, and he handed me a plastic card, much like a credit card, but pure white with a line of black zeros. It came in a black slipcase, embossed with the words absolute discretion and a distinctive golden hexagonal symbol on the back of the card in the spot where they normally hold a credit card signature there was a sentence an elaborate black script you have received an invitation to visit the san francisco house of the latitude below the script i saw a web address and a code the latitude society invitation card i turned it over in my fingers what is this i asked but Justin refused to answer my questions. He laughed as I pulled out my phone, went straight to the web address, and entered in the code in the form I found there. The website was elegant and basic, black serif text on a gray background, and after I logged in, the site showed me two definitions of the word discretion, a noun. One defied discretion as freedom of choice, while the other emphasized subtlety and secrecy. I clicked through these definitions and then the website subjected me to an intimidating terms and conditions form before displaying time slots to sign up for an appointment. Justin's offer, the dramatic website, the mysterious appointment, the entire experience made me catch my breath, made me laugh aloud. I felt like I was in a fairy tale. I felt like I had been chosen for something special. I couldn't help but wonder what this society was building. What secrets were they protecting? I looked at the blank white credit card, and I couldn't help wondering how much money was involved. Well, I signed up for an appointment immediately. After I made my appointment, the Latitude website sent me an email. Your appointment is for you and you alone. A visit to the Latitude house is not for the weary or timid of heart. It's an experience reserved for those willing to bravely leap into the unknown. The message listed an address. It encouraged timelines and, again, discretion. Weeks later, on a Saturday afternoon, I stood before a pair of gray doors in San Francisco's Mission District. People walked past me, normal people walking around on a normal day, while I tried to be invisible. Beside the doors, there was a card reader embossed with the same golden symbol on the card case. I glanced around, then slid my card through it. The doors opened. Inside, I discovered a polished wooden fireplace, a fireplace that contained a white oak slide descending into darkness. It was illuminated by two scarlet pulsing lights and surrounded by a low thrumming. I saw nothing else but a camera above my head, with a small light that indicated I was being surveilled. The lights began to pulse faster, and the thrumming rose to an urgent hum. The floor vibrated beneath my feet. My heart thumped. I launched myself into the slide, emerging fast into the dim reception room, 
with three wooden doors. A still, silent figure sat behind frosted glass ticket window. Above the ticket window, a neon sign said, Shh. I suspected that the figure was a mannequin, but couldn't be sure. As I gazed at this silhouette, a cabinet beside the window clicked open. There was a sign within it asking me to leave all my possessions inside. Standing in the quiet waiting room, I remembered back to the day Justin gave me the invitation. I asked Justin, how long will this take? Will I be able to meet my clients the next day? He just smiled and shrugged. Now, confronted by the cabinet, I wonder if I was about to be hooded and bundled into a van or removed from San Francisco by helicopter. How well did I know Justin? Not very well, and I had no idea who built this place. I felt scared and exhilarated, like I was falling down a rabbit hole. I drew a deep breath, then another one, and I surrendered both my phone and my wallet. The figure behind the ticket window seemed to watch me, unmoving. As I closed the cabinet, one of the doors thrummed. I tried the other two doors, locked, and then I opened the third, which led into a dark tunnel. I got down on my hands and knees, and the twisting tunnel led me into a library so tiny that I didn't have space to stand. So I sat and looked around the stately shelves. Each one was lined with identical tall gray books, whose spine said, The Latitude, and bore the same golden hexagonal symbol from the card. The tiny library was elegant, as a Renaissance painting, and meticulous as Disneyland. Before me, on a short lectern, one of the gray books lay closed. I ruffled through the pages. They were blank. Then the blank white pages lit up, and a woman's voice began to speak. There was an island, she said softly, and at its center was a village, and on its shore there was a port. Her words drew themselves in calligraphy on the page, alongside the words and illustration of the sea, collaced. Quickly the illustration perspective swept forward and arrived at the base, of a towering rock that rose directly from the water. So if we don't have your attention yet, this is pretty good. Steve, keep us going. I had never seen a real-life social network puzzle before. I was already obsessed. I wasn't kidnapped, and there were no fanciful helicopters. But the day's adventure did end up taking me all across, all across the Mission District on foot following enigmatic messages and hexagonal symbols. After the glowing fable in the book, I pulled other books down from the tiny library shelves. Each book was blank, and yet, beyond the blank pages, each book contained an identical index that started like this. A ghost train, Azure, 5305. Abraxoids, or Abraxas stones, Azure, 4280. Absolute Discretion, Indigo, 1937. Absolute Zero, Onyx, 4887. Abydos, Opal, 0121. Administration of Sympathetic Renaissance, Fern, 5457. Aero Damnation, Onyx, 6062. The minutes stretched on as I poured over the index, recognizing some names, but not most. I'd heard of the Fibonacci sequence and the Mesopotamian city of Nineveh. I knew the name of John D., 
the medieval scholar magician who advised Queen Elizabeth I. Under W, there was an entry called We Are Being Observed. A disembodied voice came whispering softly into the library. Lydia, you need to move on. I glanced up and saw another red-lit camera watching me and smiled. From the library, I proceeded into a lounge. Dim in tangerine-colored light, lined in dark couches and antique black-and-white photos, a low table bore brass skull. A bar in the corner displayed a bottle of unlabeled liquor and an inviting glass filled with ice. I picked up the glass. The ice was fresh, its edges crystalline. Someone else had been here moments ago. They'd left this ice for me, but I was alone in the room. I felt a deep, unsettling thrill at the sense that I was being watched, tested, measured, welcomed, anticipated, and understood. There was an old-fashioned black telephone sitting on a side table. I picked up the handset, and it delivered a recorded message laden with cryptic clues. I retrieved my possessions from a locker, then sat on a black couch and waited without drinking anything. I figured that since someone had told me to move on from the library, there was another person coming through behind me. When he arrived, I convinced him to work with me. We encountered another girl on the way. I snared their contact information, learned who invited them both to the society, and started to build a mental membership chart. I'm not usually good at puzzles, but this was a new kind of puzzle. I was dying to know. Who else was a member of the Latitude Society? What was the internal hierarchy? How could I find the people who created it? I had never seen a real-life social network puzzle before. I was already obsessed. By the end of the day, our mission had led us to a room full of arcade games. As we played one of the games, a static version or vision appeared and delivered a mysterious speech containing a code word. This word allowed us to return to the Latitude website and log in, whereupon we discovered forums where all of the participants used assumed names. I recognized some names from the weird Bay Area art projects. Justin's moniker was Dr. Professor. I chose Noisemaker, an old Burning Man nickname. Immediately, I set about figuring out how to meet the society's mysterious creators. The few people I knew in the society didn't know much or acted cagey when I asked them for details. Through Google, I gathered only that it was a project created by Nonchalance, a company that previously created an art quote-unquote cult called the Jejun Institute. I learned many things from the forum, and I grilled Justin, Dr. Professor, with a flurry of questions. Dr. Professor explained that in latitude parlance, he was my ascendant, as the person who received the invitation from him, I was his descendant. He was several steps ahead of me in the society and had already gathered a lot of information. But in response to my thorniest questions, he always asked, are you sure you want to know the answer or do you want to figure it out on your own? Aside from the forums, the Latitude website contained a marketplace where we could buy merchandise like t-shirt that said absolute discretion. The irony made me laugh and I bought it immediately. The marketplace also sold invitation cards for $25 a piece. Cards like the white one I had already received, each with a different unique code. I purchased several invitations, 
but invited only one person, and I held on to the rest. I barely knew what I had joined, and I had no idea what inviting others might mean, but I was eager to learn. I started wearing my Absolute Discretion t-shirt everywhere because it helped me identify Latitude members in the wild. I even posted it on Instagram with glee and trepidation. Was I breaking the rules? What, what were the rules? One day I met a local artist for lunch. He laughed when he saw the t-shirt and spoke society code word. I carefully asked him for details. He shrugged. Oh, the Latitude Society, he said. And for, the, and for the first time, I heard some of the names of the people who might be behind it. It's Jeff Hall, he said, and Kate Mailer. You know, those people. I nodded like I knew what he was talking about, and I held the names close to my heart like a prize. For a few months after I joined, members met in person by arranging gatherings on the forums. Often we simply met for drinks or meals, but impromptu traditions emerged. For instance... Some members conducted regular explorations of San Francisco's privately owned public spaces. Then after several months, the society itself introduced official events. The first event was what the society called Praxis, a ritualistic gathering in a lounge I'd seen on my first day, the lounge with the brass skull. Praxis always began with senior society member retelling the fable that we, that we heard from the glowing book. There was an island. And at its center was a village. And on its shore, there was a port. The fable teller was always from the Affairs Guild, a group of volunteers that ran society events. Each guild member had their own way of telling the fable, which changed depending on their mood. After the fable, each praxis went in different directions, but it was always creative and ritualistic. The first praxis I attended was led by an ethereal, soft-spoken redhead in her 20s. I thought she might be Cat Meller. Slowly between jaunts and parties and praxis events, I collected a group of society friends. The artists, gamers, and general weirdos who formed its core. We traded tidbits about how the society was structured, and we investigated its mysteries. For example... The website contained a hidden form that enabled members to look up codes from the gray books, indexes. Several members mined that form to make spreadsheets of terms like abraxoids or abidos, and then we searched those from spreadsheets for patterns. It felt like part of a vast and dynamic underground community. Attendees were game and came focused. Anthony Rocco, who was part of the Affairs Guild, and I ran a lot of Praxis events. He told me later, Rocco is a co-founder of the experience design firm FOMA Labs. People made showing up a priority, and they dove in right away. I felt like part of a vast and dynamic underground community. Greg Gioa, who tended bar at many of the society events, said that there was a feeling that by stepping into the lounge, you'd traveled in time to an underground world only slightly connected to the city above. Soon, the community members developed new rituals in the society style. Some members told the fable as bedtime story for their children. 
others came up with a unique invitation experience when they gave away invitation cards. I heard a rumor that one, that one ascendant led all his descendants through a stone tunnel and onto a beach at night, where a robed circle of candlelit chanters granted the card. I soon felt confident enough to start inviting people myself. There were no official instructions about how to choose descendants. We knew that we should invite people of like-minded and heart, but that was all the criteria that we were given. I went slowly because I wasn't always certain about who was the right who was right for the society, and invitations weren't free. Yet despite these limitations, I invited at least two people per month. The Latitude Marketplace raised the price of the invitations to thirty-two dollars, but I kept buying them. It was becoming a really expensive hobby. In fact, granting invitations was one of my favorite aspects of the Latitude membership. Everyone reacted to my invitations differently. A few of my descendants became highly involved members. Some people passed through the doors, had their adventure, and went back to their lives unaffected. And others never even activated their cards. They told me sheepishly that they were, quote-unquote, too busy. I'm an, intro- an inveterate networker. I thought the latitude might be a good networking tool, but inviting colleagues and clients proved risky even when I was certain that they'd love it. For example, one ex-colleague seemed thrilled and honored to receive the invitation. I feel like I'm in a movie, he breathed as I handed it to him. But later he mailed it back to me with a note. I started signing up for an appointment, but while I'm cool with the cloak and daggerness, in fact, I kind of like it, the information asymmetry really bothered me. Example, giving personal information away without knowing who I was giving it to or for what. It ended up creating a new awkwardness between us. This became known factor among experienced society members that many invitees never use their card. One member wrote later, I was stunned, flabbergasted to learn that a significant number of people don't even bother taking that step. A friend sits you down, asks you absolute discretion, and gives you a mysterious card that, if activated, literally opens a door to a new world of adventure, and you don't even use it? Come on, people. Be better. (laughs) Why were some of us drawn in like moths to a flame while others reacted zero? We were looking for meaning, and the society seemed like a place, or seemed like a space, where we're doing that what we're doing, that together. More than being a performance, said Thomas Lotze, a society member in his mid-30s. In his daily life, Thomas led statistical experimentation at the payment processing company Square. There was a focus on taking the time and attention to reflect on ideas. I feel like much of my life is so focused on doing the thing that I don't take that, that doing the thing that I don't take that to, to that kind of time very often. The feeling of warmth and excitement and sparkling eyes was really strong, and it formed a lot of my sense of what this group was and why it was meaningful. Lena Strayhorn, an experimental musician, a stay-at-home mother, who has worked as a nonprofit administrator, told me that I was vaguely confused yet elated by Praxis. It was like performance art as a secret society meeting. I threw myself into participating building the Art Life Project along with other members. The long-term collective storytelling are deepened for me every time I attend. So, although I can't say exactly what drew me to the latitude, I was hooked. Over the course of my year in the society, 
I fell madly in love with my new boyfriend, yet even in sleepless delirium, I kept society events on my calendar. I worked hard to build my consulting brand, which led to a dream job at a media startup. So my work schedule became punishingly intense, but I made time for the latitude. And finally, after months of puzzle solving and card granting, I received an invitation from Kat Mailer herself. She invited me into the Affairs Guild and offered me the chance to run a brand new praxis with Jeff Hall, the founder of Nonchalance. What is a social network? Is it a community? A zygist in artwork? The internet has shaped new ways to understand, utilize, and monetize human relationships. As digital media matures, the process of developing social networks is codifying into a set of best practices. Here's an example of a social media best practice. When social networks begin, they should be exclusive, even if they plan to get bigger later. One reason startups tend to limit the early user base is testing. It's useful to test the product on a smaller number of people and make sure it's good before taking on the logistical burdens of a million members. A second reason to limit the early user base is targeting. It's easier to appeal to a small, well-understood market than to target the world's diverse population. A third is to make users feel special. Networks often feel more exciting when they're exclusive. This is relevant because the Latitude Society was, in reality, produced by the profit-seeking startup Nonchalance. The company's founder, Jeff Hall, started Nonchalance in the early 2000s. His employees included Kate Mailer and many other artists, community builders, and engineers. The seed money came from Jeff's inherited wealth. His father, Blair Hall, sold an algorithmic trading firm to Goldman Sachs in 1999 for $531 million. Within the society, Jeff sometimes styled himself the anonymous benefactor, and he rarely posted on forums or attended events. The company's growth strategy was not discussed outside nonchalance. But Jeff had reportedly said that he had hoped to monetize the Latitude Society and make it self-sustaining. This wouldn't be easy, because the society was an expensive endeavor, given the technical design, manpower, and elaborate space, including multiple rented locations across San Francisco, the primary location took nearly three years to build before they opened it up to members, and a staff member told me that the Latitude Society cost Jeff $2 million in total. Jeff has neither confirmed nor denied this number. It was obvious that if the company stuck to invitations and t-shirts, they'd never earn enough to cover Jeff's investment. If nonchalance growth strategies mimic that of social media product, its problems did too. The most obvious parallel is the grow first and figure out revenue later strategy, famously used by the media startups. This attitude is sometimes mocked with the phrase, build it and they will come. But the company faced special challenges too. Like issue with its first-time user experience, startups sometimes abbreviate this to FTUE. The society's invitation-only structure came straight out of the modern social media playbook, yet its FTUE was exceptionally hard to manage because so many aspects took place in locations that weren't directly controlled by nonchalance. For example, 
the initial adventure around the mission district was enveloped in real-world messiness. As I gave out invitations, I became accustomed to descendants texting me with technical questions. I reached, I reached the third station, but the door won't open. Or confusion, I reached the special society coin from... I received the special society coin from the bartender, so I tried putting it in the jukebox on the street, but the jukebox jammed. I think I made a mistake. How do I get a new coin? Some of my descendants only got halfway through their FTUE and never finished at all. In other words, there are a majority of glitches because the product was buggy. Another hard-to-control factor was the invitation process. Some members, like me, thought carefully about each person that they invited. Other members had a more casual flair. They carried cards everywhere and handed them out to interesting strangers without even leaving a phone number behind. Nonchalance tried to manage this by issuing guidelines about what the ascendants ought to tell descendants. Eventually, the company became iterated on the invitation cards by printing instructions directly on the card case, where recipients couldn't miss them. The new, more explicit card. As I learned more about the company's operations, I became increasingly curious. It felt strange that my extraordinary society, to which I gave more and more of my personal time and energy, was just another Bay Area startup. But did that necessarily make the society hollow at its core? Meaningless? I heard about people who got invited to the society only to quit in disgust, saying that it was an elaborate mythos, was nothing but marketing ploy. Other people believed it was actively dangerous. One of the society's most articulate critics was Rebecca Power, the 26-year-old CEO of experienced studio Quaxout Games, she was now an artist in residence working on game design for the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. Rebecca was an early society invitee like me, but she canceled her account soon after she joined. Rebecca sent me an email outlining her critiques. Here's an abridged version of her message. No matter where I start a conversation about the Latitude Society, I end up talking about corporate responsibility. If there was a terms of service agreement, why did it not include a formal procedure for releasing yourself from it? I know the employees were monitoring us, but who was monitoring them? Immersive experience design as commercial entertainment is in its infancy, and it does have established legitimacy. If the latitude came apart because of an incident caused by nonchalance's lack of oversight, how would it affect the work of the other artists like me? Scarier yet, what would it say to the artists if the Latitude Society succeeded? I received my invitation card from someone I knew. The day after my appointment, he messaged me privately on Facebook to say he'd been watching me on the video camera. At the time, I brushed it off. It ruined my enjoyment of the theatrical experience, but there were plenty of other ways I could engage with the project without engaging with him. Then another employee gave my boyfriend a card and told him that I'd been playing for several weeks. That was not great for our romantic relationship. Finally, at my first and only praxis, yet another employee told the group what I did for a living, effectively outing my actual identity. 
I requested that they deactivate my membership, but when I left, I became a security risk. People I knew made vague comments and threats that I would regret leaving or talking about it. A roommate of mine stopped telling me where he was going when he left the house. Friends whom I trusted contacted me and played stupid about their own involvement in order to suss out what I knew. I can't say with confidence that nonchalance encouraged this behavior, but they should have been able to predict it. The fact that nonchalance had no procedure in place to identify, address, and rectify this behavior results resulting from their product and made no effort to put those procedures in place once that behavior became obvious demonstrates a lack of concern for their consumers that, if applied in other industries, would result in fines or a class action lawsuit. I recognize that some people's lives were changed for the better because their involvement of the Latitude Society. I have no desire to denigrate their experience, nor do I hold everyone who maintained membership in the society responsible for the actions of the few. But my own experience, the one with paranoia and intimidation and inexperienced people abusing my fabricated power, is equally real, equally a product of the architecture of nonchalance designed and built. How can I praise someone for the beauty they created if they cannot also accept responsibility for the ugliness? Rebecca's concerns are similar to critiques leveled at the social media platform companies, which often struggle with harassment and oversight issues. Twitterman's harassment problem, for example, is legendary. And yet, even as I heard stories like Rebecca, the society was still giving me experiences I loved. I wanted to believe that nonchalance would figure out how to do it right, and I wanted to help. Jeff Hall is a shave-headed man in his mid-40s with a neat dark beard. In the lounge with a brazen skull, Jeff sat on a black couch, totally at ease. During our, uh, during our nearly conversation, or early conversations, I didn't ask many questions because I didn't want to seem like a desperate fangirl. At the time, I was thrilled and honored by the opportunity to brainstorm a new praxis with him. There was another society with us that day, a society member with us that day, Anthony Rocco. Together, the three of us developed the idea for praxis called the Fable Equisite Corpse. It was the name after the collaborative surrealist game exquisite corpse in which participants create a story or drawing together i perched excitedly on the couch opposite of jeff and asked can i read the copy of the fable before we begin i don't think i remember it at all it's not written down anywhere said jeff the fable is never recorded he added emphatically but you've heard it enough times you know it remember the island the village the port he retold the fable and I memorized each plot point. We lit candles on the table and laid out snacks. As 12 society members trickled into the lounge, we asked them to join us on the couches. We began with the formal opening ritual, and then we explained how Fable Equisite Corpse could be played. There was an island. It was a tropical island with a beautiful beach, said one person. And, it's at, the, and at its center was a village. And, it, and on its shore, there was a port. 
The port tri- traded spices from around the world, said another. In the village, the roofs were almost all blue, said a third. But a few roofs were yellow and green, said a fourth. Legal codes governed which colors were allowed, said another. There were political battles over who could use which colors, I added. We went on for an hour. We added visual details to the village, developed its culture, explored the hero's motives, and at the end of it, when the attendees left and we were cleaning up, Jeff said, that was great. Anthony and I both glowed. A lot of members were obsessed, even in love with the Latitude Society. But what was the nonchalant, what was nonchalant's building exactly? A slide deck? Recently posted on SlideShare shows how nonchalance tried to pitch the society's business case. Slide number six places the society at the center of the Venn diagram with three circles, peer-to-peer community, social gaming, and cultural events. Slide number seven, a dynamic cross-media rollout with multiple revenue streams, among other streams, that that the slide mentions merchandise and membership services. In, in mid-2015, Nonchalance rolled out the membership service, and they took the form of what the media business calls a paywall. With little fanfare, the society announced that many aspects of being a member, such as a praxis and other official meetups, would now require a paid membership. Perhaps unsurprisingly, this caused controversy. If you watched the New York Times roll out its paywall, you might have predicted that society members would be upset by one, too. Much like San Francisco itself, the society hadn't felt like it was intended for people with money until suddenly it did. Yet within the Latitude Society, there were extra reasons members got upset by the paywall. Many of us poured hours of volunteer work into the society and felt hurt at being asked to pay when we had given so much already. Plus, many of us weren't rich. The new membership plan cost hundreds of dollars a year. The society had its share of tech gentry, but membership was expensive even for some techies, let alone artists and social workers. So the paywall felt out of touch with the community, and it created a hierarchy of wealth, where previously members had distinguished themselves via creativity and service, it was new and unwelcome type of exclusivity. The announcement hurt, especially for members who were struggling to hang on to their home in a city that was fast becoming the most expensive in the nation. Much like San Francisco itself, the society hadn't felt like it was intended for people with money until suddenly it did. Living in San Francisco, one often feels trapped in a playground for the carelessly rich, and it hurts to be treated like a toy. And finally, how could we feel good inviting others to a society knowing that our descendants would be asked to pay? Someone started a thread on forums titled, When a Gift Comes with a Price Tag, and it quickly gathered responses. Today, there's a public staff list of who worked on the Latitude Society, and you can get a sense of the operation scale from Jep's epilogue note on the Society website. I am credited as Noisemaker. Note that the site has been having trouble loading lately, so there's a screenshot of the epilogue. Back when I got invited, however, it was hard to determine who was officially employed because there was no staff listed and and nobody listed on the company on their LinkedIn profiles, the most visible team member, pardon me, was Kat Mailer. She was an experienced designer. When they built the tiny library, she spent hours hand rubbing the carpet with oil of vetiver. She ran all the events, 
so she absorbed most of the negativity from the membership rollout. Although it was clearly painful for Kat to tell us something we didn't want to hear, she held firm. Nonchalants really needed to monetize the latitude, she told us. Other nonchalant employees, including Jeff, supported her by attending events and posting on forums. The entire community held meetings and wrote comments about how the society could earn money. Hundreds of people signed up as paid members. Yet ominous details emerged during that time, too. I learned that Uriah Finley, the longest-running staff member, had left. He had been at nonchalant since before Latitude, and his departure portended major change. Later, Uriah told me, I was, I was effectively Jeff's partner in crime for years, but the company was changing directions. Rumors soon came that Jeff planned to cease production on physical locations and move entirely to virtual reality. I heard from a nonchalance employee that Jeff said he thought we were entitled, that he was angry because he'd given us a $2 million gift we didn't appreciate properly. One person told me that nonchalance didn't have a profit and loss sheet, the most basic method of tracking business finances, which implied that the company couldn't possibly have a meaningful monetization plan. Members started to ask each other, given that Jeff was mind-bendingly rich, could he understand what he was asking the community for? And then, did Jeff actually want non-wealthy members in at the first place? I learned later that a few months after the membership service rollouts, Kat and another core employee submitted their two-week notices. Then an article was published about the Society, an article Jeff had sanctioned. It was the Society's first major modification to our official policy of discretion, which was jarring, and it didn't help that Jeff was quoted saying unkind things. I hate it. It's so stupid. Jeff had reportedly said of one community initiative. He'd also said, I'd be happy to kick people out. My team is a little more sympathetic and they have more compassion than I do. But I personally would be happy to kick people out. It's not for everyone. It's not even for everybody who thinks it's for them. Naturally, members reacted to this article with confusion and pain. And there were more explosions on the, flo- on the forum. Less than a week after the article was published, Jeff, sh- Jeff shut down the website. He left only a note that the San Francisco House of Latitude was closed. It was so sudden that I had to contact two people and tell them that their mysterious appointments <coughs> scheduled later that week would never happen at all. The society closed on Monday, September 28, 2015. In the year since I joined, I had taken a full-time job. I was at work when I got the afternoon call from Dr. Professor. My ascendant, always several steps ahead of me, had become leader of the Affairs Guild, and he often worked on other integral pro- internal projects, too. My heart fluttered as I picked up the phone, then fell at his words. Hey, you. Hey, you and I are supposed to run Praxis tonight for a few new members, said Dr. Professor. But I just heard that Jeff is shutting the society down. Even as my stomach clenched, I wasn't surprised. Oh, I said. I got up from my chair and left the office so my colleagues wouldn't overhear me. Well, what are we going to do, I asked when I was safely outside. I don't know, he said. Who else knows it's closing? Almost nobody else, he said. I think you and me and the employees know. Honestly, I wouldn't even be telling you, except we're supposed to run this praxis tonight. 
Well, when will it happen? Can we still get into the building tonight to run Praxis? I don't have any details. I'm more concerned about what we're going to tell the new members, said Dr. Professor. I mean, should we still run a newbie Praxis if we know the society is closing? I gnawed at my lip. This was my last chance ever to run a Praxis, I thought. I said yes. In that case, he said, I'll check on whether we can get into the building. But we can't do the normal introduction to the society, right? So we just have to tell them what it meant to us. Soon after Jeff closed the Latitude Society, he posted an update on Facebook. A few society members copied the update and passed it around. Some expressed anger, some sympathy. I've been rolling a boulder uphill for a year, for four years, and it kept getting heavier. It was my most audacious undertaking besides parenthood, and getting to the top meant success. Recently, as my shoulders began to give out under the weight, I looked around and seeing no relief in sight, I decided to do the most healthy thing I could possibly do. Let go. After he closed the Latitude Society, Jeff wrote publicly about his history. It will be an enduring and an inescapable mystery how a game built to offer shared whimsy inspiration and play can result in trauma for people most closely involved. I tried to contact Jeff via Facebook to learn more about his feelings, only to discover that he had unfriended me and some other society members. I had, rumored, I had heard rumors that Jeff was absent when the equipment was dismantled, that he sent instructions to nonchalance remotely. I texted Jeff, and he agreed to do an interview, but then he didn't respond to any questions about why he shut it down, saying only that he had written everything he had cared to write. There was a vision behind the Latitude Society, but as it grew, it needed more than vision. It needed attention. For any product, you begin with a prototype, and then you work with your users to iterate and improve. Kat Mailer told me that, off the top of my head, roughly 1,200 people came through the doors, and there were 200 to 250 paid memberships in any given month. Another estimate puts the number of attendees closer to 2,000. Iterating a product with one or 2,000 users and 200 fiercely dedicated power users demands a certain skill set. Iteration demands patience and process. It demands empathy and humility. The story of the Latitude Society is a parable of Bay Area tech culture genius and exuberance and one of the ways this culture can be fickle and fail. I will always wonder why Jeff felt so negative that he cut off most of the society and employees that he mentored. Perhaps Jeff felt like the community rejected him. Perhaps he felt like a failure as a businessman or an artist. But although many society members felt burned and forsaken, many are still grateful. It was just the beginning of something amazing for me, said society member Naomi Rifkin, a 46-year-old resource, co resource coordinator at a charter school in Oakland. As awful as it was, the way the Latitude Society ended, I think ultimately it was good to realize that it didn't rest in the hands of one person. Jeff tapped into something he didn't own. It's a mindset that we can cultivate for each other. The friendships I've made with people who value the ability to incite wonder it's the most valuable thing I, had, I ever had. In contrast to Jeff's feelings, his employees' feelings seemed very clear. 
Even Jeff's staff didn't know that he was shutting down the society until the day it happened. Thus, many of us, many of them felt a mix of sadness, anger, and embarrassment, and fear due to son unemployment. Their fear was compounded by the fact that Jeff owned all the intellectual property from the Latitude Society and was wrapped up in a non-disclosure agreement. This made it hard for employees to develop a portfolio or describe their work. For example, Uriah told me that months after he had left nonchalance, Jeff texted him asking him to remove one sentence phrase from his professional website because the two of them had often used it together. On Facebook, Many society employees posted and reposted this status. If I gave you an invitation to a thing, that thing is now over. I'm sorry if you missed it, because it was the work of so many careful and skilled hands, and it was truly a thing to behold. And if I didn't, I'm so sorry. There were a ton of invitations. I've been waiting until, well, this week to give out. I don't believe in harboring regrets, but this unfortunate timing does sting. There will be more things... But if you still have the card, it's now a fossil. Sorry. I personally believe that one good thing that occurred was sort of a social social shelter where people could interact and connect in a very intimate way. Cat wrote me in an email, but as far as secret, I'm ra- I'd ra- I'm rather off that word. I'm more for surprises now. I think a surprise is a secret that everyone agrees will only last for a finite time and will ultimately be gifted and shared. I don't want to hold my breath that long anymore. One night, the Latitude Society closed. Roughly 100 members went to the Sycamore, a local bar that was significant during our first Latitude missions. A storm of messages flew along ascendants, descendants, and internal Latitude clicks. The forms were gone, so the messages were scattered spiral. We had no way to reach everyone at once. Many of us didn't even know each other's names in real life. What happened? I can't believe it's over. No way. Isn't Jeff just playing a new game? Wait, who's Jeff? Jeff is the anonymous benefactor. Anyway, I don't think this is a game. Did you hear about Jeff's Facebook update? Hey, I heard people were going to the Sycamore. Late in the evening, I passed a society friend in the street as she came home from the bar. She caught my arm and silently handed me a hexagon made from pipe cleaner. She was carrying as a basket full of them. (coughs) Pardon me. But I missed the sycamore gathering because Dr. Professor and I were running our praxis in the Brass Skull Lounge. It was strange. It had been intended to orient greenhorns into the society, and instead, it became a wake. After praxis, I went into a tiny library and opened the book to watch the fable one last time. I began to take video. Two minutes later, I heard Dr. Professor's voice behind me. Lydia! Lydia! He was using my real name. Just a minute. I'm recording, I called back. No. He snapped and squeezed into the library with me. The fable is never written down. It's never recorded. That's one of our traditions. I blinked at him. This is all going away, I said, and we'll never see it again if I don't do this. I'm surprisingly angry at you right now, Dr. Professor said fiercely. The society might be done... But the the tradition still means something. Then he deflated. Please, he said. I can't stay mad at you, but please don't do this. He fought me for five minutes, and I finally agreed. I felt like crying as I crawled out of the library. But I went back into the library and recorded the fable an hour later, when my ascendant was distracted. And couldn't stop me. 
We always intended to start a real secret society that cared and mattered and treated people well. As I wrote this article, I debated whether to publish the recording. So I asked three people, including Kat Mailer and Jeff Hull. In Jeff's short email response, he wrote, I don't think any of the release material needs to be secret. It's out there already. And Kat, who narrated the fable, wrote, I'd love for your video of the fable as told in the SF House Library to be public. The third person was Uriah Finley, the experienced designer who originally created the fable. One of the proudest creations was that the fab- was the fable that he told me. I respect society members to desire their desire to treat our made-up tradition as a real thing because it feels real to them and is important to them. But the fable is one of the most beautiful portions, and it's one that we made, and I'd love to see it out there. I hope people realize we were trying to make something special, Uriah added. There's this perception now that it was only out of, out of making money. But we were operating under this assumption that the latitude could only survive if it could support itself. We always intended to start a real secret society that cared and mattered and treated people well. We believed that the latitude latitude society could give people something that was missing in the modern age. And we wanted to give that to others. So that was the the true story of a uh, member that was actually involved in the latitude society and uh, I think it's so interesting. Um, the, only, the only problem that I had with, with the way that it broke up, I think, was, uh, well, you know what? What we should do before we even get into that is we should actually play the fable and, uh, so that you can hear it. And then, then, we'll, then we'll tell you what we think. What do you think about that, Steve? I like it. All right. So here we go. Here's the fable that... Uh, that they wanted to put out so that the world could hear. was an island. And at its center was a village, and on its shore there was a port. In the village, there were villagers. They had their homes and traditions. They had their ways passed down for generations. At the port, there were travelers. They had their ships and cargoes. They had their ways shared and traded with many lands. Now one day, the villagers grew afraid. They wanted their lives to be simple. They did not want the ebb and flow of the other worlds coming to and fro. They wanted nothing more to do with the port. They decided to build a wall. The wall they built stood thick and tall and stood wide and strong and prime. It surrounded the village, separating it from the port. And for some time after, the village was quiet. And for some time after, nothing changed. And for some time after, life was simple, which was, after all, the point. But one day, one man from the village dissented. And one night, this man set his mind to finding a way back to the port and the many worlds beyond. He decided to make a passage through the wall. He worked alone, and he worked all night. By the light of the moon, he removed stones from the wall one by one. By dawn, he had made a tiny passage, big enough for him alone, and he walked back to his village home and slept. The next night, he returned, but when he got to the passage, he found the stones replaced. So he fetched a friend of like mind and heart, and they decided to once again make a passage through the wall. They worked together. They worked all night. By the light of the moon, they removed stones from the wall, and by dawn, they had made a small passage big enough for them both. And they walked back to their village homes and slept. 
The next night they returned, but when they got to the passage, they found the stones were placed. So together they fetched still more friends of like mind and heart. And now numbering twelve, they decided this night to make a tunnel beneath the wall. They worked together, they worked all night. By the light of the moon, they dug the earth from beneath the wall, and by dawn they had made a huge passage big enough for all twelve. And this time they concealed their work. They chose one great stone, one so large that it took all twelve of them to move it. And with this stone they covered the mouth of the tunnel. So that they might find it again, they marked this stone with a discreet symbol in a discreet place. And they walked back to their village homes and slept. The next night they returned and all together moved the stone. They traveled through the tunnel beneath the wall and went down to the port. And by the break of dawn they had returned to the village with new things and stories and wonders and ways. Some thought them mad and some thought them fools, but some came to them with curiosity, asking about the magic that took them beyond the wall. From time to time the twelve would fetch one more into their group. And together they would move the secret stone and visit the port, traveling together and returning by dawn. And even after the first twelve had passed, those who had been shown the way would sometimes share it with another, of like mind and heart, all under a code of absolute discretion. Now, even after so many nights, after so many moons and ages and eras, over mountains and deserts, across rivers and cities and the widest of seas, a group of people, of like mind and heart, is still showing the way through the tunnel, beneath the wall, and continues to do so to this very day. All right, so that was the fable. It's a... The volume on it was a little low as recorded. Um, you can kind of hear uh, the the camera being uh, or recording this from the uh, from that secret room, and uh, she was trying to be quiet before um, Doctor Professor came back in and uh, tried to stop her with his disgust. But um, what I was saying before we uh, before we played the fable was, you know, they really could have kept this this going. I, I believe. Um, I think the um, the society got it wrong when they all became angry that they had to uh, pay into it. With uh, I think I think the dues came out to what I think we read was like uh, three hundred dollars per year, and I think that they should have contributed to keep this going. I mean, granted, you had this uh, multi-millionaire that put up two million dollars to start the to start the whole Latitude project. And uh, look, I don't think that it should all—all all the responsibility after that should should fall on him. I mean, nothing in this world is free, and they—they uh, they were all benefiting it from from it. They were all becoming more creative in their projects and their practices, and um, yeah, I mean, just like any type of club that you'll join or social group or a country club. I mean, there's going to be dues. Um, or like if you think about any type of a streaming app, you can get a week for free. You don't have to purchase it. Um, but if you want, if you want to continue on with it because you like it and it's beneficial to you, you uh, you you throw some money at it. And I think they were being a little selfish there. The networking could have really come in come in uh, handy and possibly profitable for all the members with all the different people that were part of the organizations. That three hundred dollars. You could have met somebody as that became a member that 
could employ you to ultimately be, start your dream job. And before you know it, you're making more money, you're happier, you're in a better position, and a position that maybe that you would strive for. So I think they screwed up. They should have had more communication. They should have had a meeting, discuss the pros and cons of what this membership is going to entail, why the membership is there. And um, look, I mean, if you know a really wealthy person and you guys go out to eat together, uh, it's not like everybody's always expecting this person to pick up the tab. No, he just has a different way of life. He's got maybe more money than you, but you know, he, why is he paying for your dinner? You guys should all just be continue to be friends, become or continue to be members in this club and, and share in the responsibility. Steve, am I wrong? No, I think you nailed it with everything that you just said. I think that the benefactor, uh, the anonymous benefactor, uh, Jeff, I think he soured. I think he soured on the, the project. I think that the attitudes of the uh, members made him feel like he wasn't being appreciated. And I think he shut it down too soon. And I think you're right when you say the word communication. If he would have been able to communicate or assign, assigned communication to a team of people and said, this is what we're up against. We are hemorrhaging money. We need to find ways in order for this to continue on because it's a burden to me. It's coming out of my pocket. I've already put the $2 million up and I was happy to do it, but I need you to reciprocate back to me by generating a flow of cash so that we can keep this going into the future. I think the members would have risen to the occasion. Yeah, I think so too because you could have eventually came up with uh, with everybody discussing. You could have come up with a, with a package. Be like, okay, well, for this $300 a year, you're going to get X amount of membership cards that you can hand out you'll get your free t-shirt that says uh discretion on it discretion only or you know or whatever the phrase was and uh you could have continued on and really done something uh, that nobody else has put together before culturally um within the art realm i mean your your expression i mean there was too many benefits and i think people sour too quick and they just expected a free ride for the rest of the time and it ended up costing them the whole society. Right. And a secret society, any any organization is, is hard to keep together. But a secret society is even harder because they can't go out in the public eye and um, and ask for money or do fundraisers. Or, you know, in the community, they can't make themselves known because it's a secret society. So they're they're limited in their ways of getting money. But I still think that they could have generated enough money to keep that whole thing going. Yeah. And I think that people probably would have held the secrets to the society a little bit more closer to their heart without sharing it. Because anything that you're going to invest in, you're going to look after and take care of more. It's like, you know, I told my kids, I'm not going to I'm not buying you a car because you're just going to be careless with it because you didn't have to pay for it. But if you pay for your car, you're going to take extra special care of it and make sure that nothing happens to it. And the same goes to uh, the secret society. You're not going to be giving away information for free that you had to pay $300 a year to become a membership to. And quite frankly, I think that that was pretty inexpensive considering that one man himself put up the $2 million. I agree. That pride of ownership would have gone a long way. Totally. So, well, we hope you enjoyed today. We certainly enjoyed uh, going over this. We find it fascinating. And uh, 
We hope to uh, do some more podcasts on uh, secret societies and delve into the inner workings and see what we can create. But until that time, I'm Foltz. And I'm Steve. And we'll see you next time. Take care of one another. Bye-bye.